Bullseye with Jesse Thorne is a production of MaximumFun.org and is distributed by NPR. It's Bullseye. My guest is Justin Simeon. He's the creator of the movie and television series, Dear White People. The third season of the show is out now on Netflix. The movie was released back in 2014. Justin used his tax refund to make the trailer. He used the trailer to launch an Indiegogo campaign and used the success of the Indiegogo campaign to raise the rest of the money to make the movie. Dear White People went on to win the U.S. Dramatic Special Jury Award for Breakthrough Talent at Sundance. Not bad for a first film. Dear White People was about a group of black students heading to Winchester University, a fictional Ivy League school, mostly white and very rich. It was hilarious and a little bit controversial. It blended breezy humor with thoughtful takes on racial tension in America. The name alone probably makes you feel at least a little hot under the collar. But when you're watching Dear White People, you never feel like you're watching somebody's master's thesis. Justin Simeon brings that entire package to the TV show. Here's the scene that kicks off the Netflix series. Sam is a biracial woman who attends Winchester after a marathon of side-eye looks and cringeworthy questions asking what race she actually is, Sam takes to the campus radio airwaves with a PSA. Dear white people, here's a little tip. When you ask someone who looks ethnically different, what are you? The answer is usually a person about to slap the out of you. While Sam's show, aptly titled, Dear White People, garnered a diverse set of listeners. Who is this chick? Others was butthurt. Getting John Carlo to say, was butthurt. <laughs> Highlight of my career. <laughs> Highlight. <laughs> uh, Justin Simeon, welcome to Bullseye. I'm happy to have you here. I love your show, man. I'm happy to be you here. You do? I oh, do. that's very nice of you. I love your show, for it's real. It's very nice of you. And thank you for saving it for after we started recording. <laughs> so, I want to ask you about your own college experience and about the show, but you just mentioned to me that you literally finished shooting your second film. Literally. This morning. <laughs> We're not shooting it. I finished the film this morning. Did you like wrap it? Did you like- yeah, Well, we shot it like a year ago. I shot it actually before the new season. So we've been in post-production. It's a horror movie and there's a lot of effects. So it's, it's just take, the post-production process has been very lengthy, but like literally this morning, I'm looking at the last of the effects the building that we're in is front and center. Like some horrible stuff goes down in this building in my movie. And uh, it was wild to pull up to it. <laughs> it was wild to pull up to it to, to come talk to you. Everybody's making horror movies these days. Are you a horror movie guy? Oh, yeah. I mean, you know, my Aunt Zora, when my mom would leave me with my Aunt Zora, um, <laughs> you know, when she needed a break from the from the gifted child that I was, uh, she would just watch these movies that were totally not age appropriate. But I fell in love with cinema there, you know? know like because i was watching like x-men and like i was just watching whatever you watch when you're a kid but she was like showing me like nightmare on elm street and like i don't know she she showed me old horror movies all the time and i kind of forgot that actually until i started making this uh movie and realizing like oh yeah that was like the first that was like my first because i think all those movies are really satires you know what i mean like that was my first taste of satire and that was my first understanding that you could say one thing by doing something you know, by kind of distracting the audience with something else. And uh, I just, I've always loved it. Dear White People is set at an Ivy League school, a fictional Ivy League school. Yeah. You didn't go to an Ivy League school. You went to, you went to a school in Orange County. Mm-hmm 
called Chapman. Yeah. First of all, how did you end up at this very good private college in yeah. Orange County? I grew up in Houston, Texas. I knew I wanted to get the hell out of Houston, Texas. No shade to Houston. I love Houston. It's hot, though, and there's no film industry there. So I knew I wanted to get to California. I couldn't afford... I think I got into USC, but couldn't afford it. Got no scholarships. Didn't get into UCLA. And Chapman would pay me money. And there were actually a few people from Houston before me who went from the theater program at the Performing Arts High School that I got into to Chapman for film. So it was kind of like a... I could afford it. It wasn't in Houston. <laughs> they did it too. That was the decision. But what Chapman kind of gave that other schools didn't give is like you got a camera year one and you got to start making short films like right away, you know? That is an unusual thing about film school. I guess probably it's not as unusual now. You're in your mid 30s. And I remember I'm like one or two years older than you. And I remember when I was in school, I had buddies who were film majors. And they only got to touch a camera the second semester of their senior year. Yeah, right. Partly for like uh, pedagogical, ideological reasons, Mm -hmm. but partly just because it was before you could just buy a camera that was really good for $500 or whatever. And we were right on that edge. We were right on that cusp and, and we were still like, oh God, the editing process was a nightmare back then. You know, like digitizing your footage was like a whole thing that didn't always go well. But yeah, you could you could shoot on something, you know, like I, I actually got to shoot on film while I was there, but you didn't have to wait until it was available. They, they would give you whatever, whatever was the Panasonic, Sony, whatever cameras that we don't even use anymore or talk about. And that was great because that's what I needed. I just needed to experiment. That's, you know, I needed that time to experiment and play. And I was so different than the other film kids because they were all like gagged about like Quentin Tarantino stuff and uh, what was the one with the bunny in it? Donnie Darko. Everybody loved that movie. <laughs> everybody was trying to em- emulate and imitate these white 90s independent directors and I just wasn't interested. I was interested in musicals and I was interested in like black stuff. And um, so to be able to like to not have to suffer the tyranny of my classmates <laughs> and get a and get a camera and just do whatever weird, weird, wild stuff I wanted to do. That was so important. That was so like that was so helpful. <laughs> Did you have teachers or mentors who were black when you were in college? Not really. I don't really, I don't know that I have mentors now per se. You know, I have people who are older than me that are helpful or feed into or, you know, pour into me and stuff. But no, not really. Um, Father Rafael Ueveno, who is not black, but uh, a person of color, uh, he, and a priest of all things, he was actually like the closest thing to that at Chapman. He taught a, a class called Fear and Evil in Film and Fiction. And it was really a literature class disguised as a film class, but I really appreciate it because I learned how to write succinctly there. We had to write. He would show us a film and we'd have to write an essay about the film. And if it was too poetic or it used too many words to describe something simple, he would just keep giving it back to you. And so at the end of the semester, you'd be turning in like five papers at a time because you had to keep rewriting them, you know. So he was like the closest thing to that, I think. Uh, The BSU at the time kind of shunned me, actually, because, again, like, I don't know that I fit whatever they thought was black at the time. BSU being Black Student Union. Black Student Union. Union. My freshman year, by the end of it, I was in the BSU. I was in the Black Student Union. And the conversations we were having, and it really did inspire Dear White People very directly. But yeah, I was an alien there, man. I was, nobody got it. (laughs) Nobody got what I was. Were you out in college? Yes. Yes, because I was Facebook. Facebook had just started. And I read straight to people, you know? And, And it wasn't so much that I was hiding that I was gay. It's just like, I didn't know when to bring it up exactly, you know what I mean? Because people just sort of 
okay. You know, they just sort of, I was whatever they thought I was. And I remember when Facebook gave you the option to put your sexuality and I just switched it to gay and I just immediately, like, I was just gay. Like, I walked into spaces and everyone just kind of stood up in a different way and suddenly the jokes were a little bit different and people stopped trying to hook me up with girls. <laughs> and, like, you know, it was, so that's how I did it in college. Yeah, uh, I feel like you you just missed the arrow where, like, to make sure that you had someone to date, you had to just, like work a Scissor Sisters t-shirt into the yeah. rotation <laughs> yeah. just in case. Well, I didn't know how to do, I didn't know when to bring it up. You know, I just really did. And I was kind of like this, you know, I have uh, an effeminate quality to me, but if you don't, if you're not looking for it, you don't necessarily see it. And it was like, yeah, do I need to like clean it up a little bit? Or like, when does it come up? You know? Uh, so that's how, that's how it happened. I had the reverse experience in high school. I also attended the theater program at uh-huh. the Arts High School. So everybody school. thought you were gay. I've just presumed, yeah. not unreasonably. <laughs> and the first time I like publicly dated a girl, I it was like it was as though a light switch had been thrown. Capital S scandal. I was like, oh my god, this is amazing! All these girls just didn't know I was straight. That's what was going on. A whole new world. I love it. Don't yeah. get sued. Um, I also went to a performing arts high school, so like sexuality was like, who knows? At, at that, I mean, straight people, gay people, everybody was up in the performing arts high school. I wasn't because I was a goody good, but people were, you know, out here doing drugs and sleeping with each other. So it just literally never came up I never had to like walk into a room and announce my sexuality until I'm in college and I'm in the straight box and it's like no I need y'all to know because this is awkward for me now (laughs) it didn't really help my dating life to come out but I did anyway so a lot of the Netflix version of Dear White People the TV show is built around the kind of intersection of the different black groups on campus Mm. this weekly caucus yeah was the fact that there were relatively few black people at your college something that like added weight to the fact that you had to pick a type of black identity? Mm-hmm. Yes, yes. Uh, there were many. This is Dear White People was born because me, a woman named Dominique, who you should know because she directed every episode of Robin Thede's new show, Black Lady Sketch Show, uh, a friend of mine named Justin. Shout Justin, out to the homie Robin Thede. Shout out to Robin, man. Real genius. We love her. Oh, God, how we love her. Uh, a friend of mine, Justin, a friend of mine, Elle, who's actually the lead in my new movie. We didn't know any of this was going to happen at the time. But we're really just sitting back and throwing shade at all of our black friends and going, oh, they're our friends because we're black and <laughs> we didn't have really have a choice. So we've just embraced these people. But in but it actually was like it was it was a bonus though, because then you we had we learned to love people where they were at. Those conversations about like, I think we're only friends with these people because they're also black. That that joke, that idea is really that was the beginning of Dear White People in my head. There are a lot of perspectives in Dear White People. A lot of the story is told in like borderline first person through mm-hmm. the through the eyes of these various characters on the show. And I apologize because I'm I'm quite confident that every African American filmmaker under forty five has every single one of their works compared to Spike Lee at some point. <laughs> so I apologize in advance that Who's Spike I'm, Lee. <laughs> I've never I'm going to say this, but <laughs> I read you actually talking about Do the Right Thing, which is one of my favorite movies. Yeah, it's and, a masterpiece. And one of the things that is special about that movie is that. As much as it, you know, it does have characters who drive the story, it is a movie about the neighborhood. Yeah. And 
in being a movie about the neighborhood, it is about a like like a just a variety of humanity. Yeah. In a way that very few movies that are that like zippy. Yeah. Are you know yes. like the other thing about it is that it's zippy. You know, yeah. like it's funny and it's vibrant and it moves. Right. And there's action. And I think it's probably the first time. In that big a scale, at that level, that there's really a fusion between the innovations of French New Wave and like the innovations of black exploitation. You know, that's what is so excellent about Do the Right Thing is that it, it is artistically phrased. You know, like, yes, it's slice of life. Yes, it's unapologetically black. Yes, the language sounds like jazz. You know, Ernest Dickerson is shooting it like a comic book, but it's also like, it's stuff that, like, in our in the back of our minds, we didn't even realize that we thought was only for them. It wasn't for us. We didn't get to be in frames like that. We didn't get to tell our stories with that kind of sophistication. I think the, the it's a great film and it's a masterpiece, but the thing that it did for me was it gave me permission to sort of reference all of my influences and to and to love cinema with my whole body when I'm telling these stories and not be afraid because those two things don't, don't go together in other people's minds. That was the explosion when I saw it in my head. It was like, oh, wow. I can reference persona and black at the same time. You know, it, that, that, was the, that was the light bulb that went off for me and do the right thing. Speaking as a white person, which I am. What? I know. Well, our audience can't <laughs> see me. They'd have to infer... <laughs> From from my practiced, uh, uh, please don't beat me up voice <laughs> in the neighborhood. Um, but speaking as a, as a white person, which I am, I think that like one of the reasons that perhaps the main reason that people feel that white people feel the title Dear White People as hostile is not because there's any explicit hostility in the title. There is none. It's simply because white people are not used to things that involve both black people and white people. Yes. That explicitly involve both black people and white people. Yes. That center the black people. Yes. And also <laughs> being called white people. Like just literally I think that's what pissed people off the most. That it identifies that, that it black, identifies people white people as also belonging to that, yes, a that, race that and that a category. A, that a black person's because you have to we also dear white people came out right around the same time as stuff white people like, which was a sensation. And it was like, no problem here, you know? And part of that is because the voice of it is so obviously a white person. But it's the same, it's literally the same joke. It's actually the same exact joke, but I am a black person saying it. And me identifying you as a race makes you aware all of a sudden that you are a part of a system it's all it's all subconscious. Like you don't realize that that's happening, but it makes you aware that you're a part of a system that's keeping me down and keeping you up. And you can't. It's, people don't want to process stuff like that, you know. And so it's got to be me that has the problem, <laughs> you know. Yeah, it's it's it sucks, but it's also my job. It's my job to challenge the status quo. It just is. It's the lot in life. It's my lot in life, you know. Uh, it's the only thing I'm interested really in doing. I can't keep my mouth shut. I don't know how to act, and I want. Um, I need to celebrate that as an artist. That's really where. That's really why picking that title was important to me because I knew it was the right title. I was terrified to call it that, but it was the right title. We'll have more with Justin Simeon in a minute. Stay with us. It's Bullseye from MaximumFun.org and NPR. This message comes from NPR sponsor, Smart Water. Smart Water is for the curious drinkers. 
the ones who are always looking for ways to make things a little bit better. That's why Smart Water created two new ways to hydrate. Smart Water Alkaline with 9 plus pH and Smart Water Antioxidant with added selenium. And now you can order Smart Water by saying, Alexa, order Smart Water. Smart Water, that's pretty smart. Let's play some games, everybody. I'm Ophira Eisenberg, host of NPR's Ask Me Another. Are you looking for the answer to life's funnier questions? Zamboni? That is correct. Every week, we blend comedy plus a special celebrity interview. Jim Gaffigan. I've always done acting. I just have never gotten roles. Listen and tell your friends. We are the host of My Brother, My Brother, and Me, and now, nearly 10 years into our podcast, the secret can be revealed. All the clues are in place, and the world's greatest treasure hunt can now begin. Embedded in each episode of My Brother, My Brother, and Me is a micro-clue that will lead you to 14 precious gemstones all around this big, beautiful blue world of ours. So start coming through the episodes. Uh, let's say starting at episode 101 on. Yeah, the early episodes are pretty problematic, so there's no clues in those episodes no no not at all the better ones the good ones clues ahoy listen to every episode repeatedly in sequence laugh if you must but mainly get all the great clues my brother my brother me it's an advice show kind of but a treasure hunt mainly anywhere you find podcasts or treasure maps my brother my brother me the hunt is on You're listening to Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. My guest is Justin Simeon, the creator of Dear White People. The third season of the TV show is out now. You can stream the entire series on Netflix. There is a, a gay character on the show. Yeah. And he is, his name's Lionel, and he has this realization about, he kind of always knew he was gay, wasn't really sure how to say it, wasn't yeah. really sure how to be gay. And I love in the first season, there's an episode that's from his perspective, and he gets invited to a theater party um, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> where there is a lot of queerness being enacted in various ways, mm -hmm. right? And there is this great absence of revelation for him uh -huh. <laughs> in this place <laughs> Yeah, that... I thought, well, this is this is so specifically observed. This guy's just got to be Justin <laughs> talking about himself. But like, you realize immediately, oh, like the story we want to tell is when someone comes out, it is revelatory. Yes, and they are immediately marching in the pride parade in yes. a throng of uh, loving queer humanity. You're who also all, skinny and you have abs. You all <laughs> in this fantasy. Yeah, who all like love each other f for who they are. Yeah. You know. Ah. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> which I think you know to some extent represents parts of some people's real experiences, sure. and that, yeah. that that rules some white people's experience. Sure, <laughs> <laughs> whiteness gives you cover no matter what else you are. That's the T. But go ahead, sorry. Yeah, no, go ahead, go ahead because you you have insight into this that I don't have. That that and you chose this. Yeah, you chose two things in that episode. One is to have him not have a revelatory gay experience in the episode where he comes out. Yeah. And you also chose to have his straight, somewhat jockey black roommate be pretty chill about the fact that he's gay. Yeah. In a way that it's obvious he, the, he Lionel, the character, is not expecting. Mm -hmm. And those are two, like, real particular 
yeah. choices that, that are not, you know, and you, you, there's a little bit of misdirection in there too. Yeah. They're like not what you might expect. Well, I think part of it is like that's what coming out was like to me. It, there was not, there were no explosions. It was very awkward actually. My mom will does not like me to tell the story, does not remember it the same way. But I had to come out like multiple times. It was like, Jay, what? Jay, you're not still, what? You know, I had to come out multiple, so there was no next day and everyone's gay. I told my family via MySpace and some of them found out when the show came out. Like it was very awkward the way it happened. And what you realize is that like, if you are coming out in your 20s as a black gay man, a lot of the trauma is already baked in. So the journey is actually just starting. You've not arrived at Oz by any means, by any stretch of the imagination, just because you come out. It actually means that you are now preparing to go on the journey to find yourself and to figure out what your niche is because you're not represented anywhere, you know? The other part of it was I wanted Troy to be understanding because, I, and I'm, I'm, I don't know who to attribute it to, it's probably Baldwin, but I'm not sure, but the, the idea that like when racism is done the right way, the people start to do it to themselves. And Lionel felt that black people would not accept him as gay because he was told that over and over by music, what people are saying in casual conversations. You know, we start that episode with him sitting with Troy and his friends and they're all making these jokes and using, you know, calling people and all this kind of stuff. So, but I didn't want anyone to ever say that in the episode. I never wanted someone to tell you the theme. I just wanted you to feel what that feels like to be black and to read straight, but you're gay and to be terrified to come out because you've been told that black people don't accept you and the surprise when they do, you know, um, not that all black people accept all gay. I'm not going there. There's no true all, all, you know, it's not true for all people, but that was my experience. And you get to, because you have a big ensemble cast on the show, and because the show is even beyond the primary cast is really about this big community, Yeah, you, I, I feel like one of the nice things is that nobody has to be a stand-in for a certain kind of person. Right. And, and a lot of that comes from the audience, from being on the other side of that Q&A line, and realizing that what I did to Tyler Perry in the first film was going to happen to me now because now I wasn't telling their story and I wasn't black enough and I wasn't gay enough. And so when I got a chance to do the show, I wanted to create a format where, yeah, Lionel didn't have to represent all gay black people. And now in the third season, there's a character named Deontay who's based on a friend of mine who has, is now passed away uh, from high school. And I mean, he was so gay. He was so queer. People just were not ready for it. He was ahead of his time. I mean, now, literally now, he'd be a star, okay? He would just have to go on Instagram and talk, and he would just be a millionaire. But at the time, in Houston, Texas, child, nobody was ready for Deontay. And so I'm able to now give voice to two different versions of black, very different versions of black queerness. Lionel, who is dipping his toe and trying to figure out who he is, and oh my God, is this for me? And and Deontay, who's like, yes, I'll have it all, you know, and put them together. And I could only do that if I made the format of the show multi-protagonist, you know? Right. And there's a lot of real sweet, there's sweetness between the two of them. There's a beautiful scene in the third season at the STD clinic, <laughs> the, the you know, the rolling STD clinic. Yes. Uh, where Deontay works. Very proud of his STD bus. <laughs> yeah. And like how sweet it is the way he kind of welcomes and takes care of Lionel. Yeah. Did you have sex under the influence of methamphetamines, aka meth, aka Tina? Who? Cocaine, aka Yeye, aka Yeyo, aka Bolivian marching powder. No. Who's doing 
Do people answer yes to these? Alcohol. Oh. Yes. Mm. Lots and lots of that. <laughs> did you use a condom? Once I did. The other guy... Relax, honey. Every day on campus has sat in that chair and has gone through exactly what you're going through right now. And every straight should, but a lot of them are just trashy people. Look, the man is wearing a white coat and he drives the STD bus. He knows how it works. He he's knows what he's doing. He's a guardian angel. <laughs> about what, what bad decisions they've made. Yeah, yeah. Not just Lionel, right? That's right. And he can, yeah, he can kind of like, he can share a little sweetness from that perspective. Yeah. It's also a story about how we isolate ourselves from each other. You know, oh, I don't know if they're going to like me and I don't think I'm, I'm not if I'm the right kind of black for those black people. And when you're kind of, you just cross the line, there's love there. There's love there. You know, we really throw Lionel into the deep end this season of homosexuality at Winchester. And <laughs> and he can swim. You know, he can float because he's got allies and he's he can make it, you know. And that was part of the story too, I think. You know, there's a lot of shame in being who we are, even when we have made it. And... Uh, seeing how that shame ricochets its way out of us and out of our relationships, a lot of Lionel's story is about that. The show is also substantially about women. Mm -hmm. And your showrunner is also a woman. Mm -hmm. Was that a choice you made or was that because it was just something that you'd paid a lot of attention to, which, you know, I think a lot of a lot of gay men who don't feel a place for themselves as a as a gay man often write for women, write for women and, and kind of like and pro project their hopes and dreams onto the women around them when they're yeah. a young person and they don't see. That's right. And I, and I didn't want to do any projecting. Right. I, I didn't want to I didn't want the tyranny of the black gay male to befall these female voices. And I it wasn't I didn't have to be told that there was no Me Too movement going on at the time. I just knew instinctive instinctually that like black women had to be all over this project because from the movie, it was clear that Sam and Coco were really like they were kind of they were the most popular characters. And with Joelle, I knew she was going to pop. And and of course, Troy and Reggie, you know, is beloved. Lionel is beloved. But the women, I could tell from the film, like, you know, our audience is slightly more women. It's like, I think, 60, 40, something like that. And it would just be irresponsible. It, it just felt like it was it was just clear. It was obvious to me. It wasn't a choice. It wasn't like I had to do any math to do it. I just knew there had to be women in that room and women behind the lens. I mean, duh. And Yvette was, you know, she created a different world. I mean, she's a legend in her field. She was the right person for the job. You know, it was actually a guy for a while um, who I also still love, but it didn't work out the time it didn't work out. Um, but I, I knew that if it wasn't the showrunner, it would be other people involved. And, you know, this season, I mean, the black women who step up to the plate to direct some for the first time, it's mind boggling. I said this on Twitter the other day. I mean it like the cinema coming out of black women, like we're not ready for it. It's a different cinema. It's a different cinema. They have not had a chance to say the things that, you know, it's just like jazz, man. Black women invent so much culture that we all emulate and that we all copy, gay men especially, but they never get the credit. They never get to do it in their own voice. And now they're getting to <sighs> get ready, get ready. Now, I happen to know that it's a miracle if Netflix tells anyone who makes something for Netflix anything about how their thing is received. It's changing. Okay. So do you actually know that? And do you know other things about who watches the show? Do white I people do. watch the show? White people watch the show. A lot, I, a lot more people watch the show than the press talks about. We are one of the most watched 
black ensemble shows out there. And uh, nobody seems to know that. <laughs> or put my girls on their covers and stuff, okay? Um, but yeah, we are, we, are, we, are, we are loved by black and white people alike. It is, it is a black skew, of course. But it's not, a, I mean, there's a lot of white people watching the show in America, but all over the world. We're huge in Brazil. They really love us there. Um, they love us in places like South Africa, which is exciting. And the culture there is changing. They, they are starting to give you some numbers. And, you know, like Ava, they brought Ava in and gave her all of the numbers, you know, for when they see us. So there is a, they're starting to change a bit on that side. And I don't know if it's about telling the public because of all of the stuff they've got going on, but just letting the creators have that moment of knowing that somebody watched their stuff because it really, it's so weird to have a Netflix show. It's really weird. It's like you do it and then like a year goes by and then all of a sudden like all of the episodes are out. <laughs> like every single one. It's not a week to week thing. Everyone's just there. All the takes. All the hot takes are there. All the, everyone's mad. Everyone's happy. Everything they love and hate. It literally just is kind of happening off screen for you. And so to be able to come into a room and at least see oh three people watch this season you know it does give it a it does give it a nice sort of like uh sense of finality or that you've done you've done something so you know this the la the season two they brought us in and they kind of they gave us enough information to work out the significance of our numbers i'll say it that way i didn't really i was never told like this many people watch this but they told us where we stood and what the percent they gave us enough information to where i was able to do some quick math and go oh my god <laughs> you know what i mean and that was great but tons of white people watch us i think i think it's i think it's probably 60 40 but i really don't remember i don't remember that demographic but it was it was not unsurprising because i'd seen the same thing happen with the movie justin i'm a radio host <laughs> Are you <laughs> okay? Are you prepared to commit going forward to having characters on the radio in your show talking to their microphones and wear their headphones? You know, I'm still on the fence about it, Jess. <laughs> I really am because you know I be on these interviews too, bruh, and I'm always have my headphones on. You know, the real tea is that like the hair. I mean, <laughs> look at the hair. There's some very serious hair on there the are program. Just, there, are, like literally, you you'd get to a scene and you know the right thing to do is to have those headphones on, but it's so impractical and it looks so so weird on camera to have headphones on all the time. This is an under... When hair is the crown on top of these these queens. This is you know. an underreported uh, <laughs> aspect of both syst systemic racism and misogyny. <laughs> you have this too, though. What headphones do to... To black women's hair, okay? Yeah. Specifically. You're yeah. all racist. Just kidding. Please have me back. Or if you... <laughs> I mean, it also would be true if it was like Ashley Judd. That's true. No, it's it's so totally it's true. It's it's an aesthetic. It's one of those cheats, man. You know, it's like you gotta. We do the best we can. It's okay. I forgive you. <laughs> Thank you. How does the career that you have now as a filmmaker compare with what you imagined mm. having a career as a filmmaker would be? Wow, I don't even know. It's so different. Like. I think what I'm realizing is more and more what my purpose is. I think I spend a lot of, I still do it, but certainly at the start of my career and certainly when I dreamed about it, I spend a lot of time chasing what the outside world says is a thing. You know, like, oh, put me in coach. Like, I want to direct this Marvel movie or I want this, like, musical property. And I come in and I pitch my ideas and white people love it, but they don't ultimately, they're too scared to go with me. And it forces me to go back to the lab and do it my way. And so I, I think... What I'm awakening to is the fact that, like, 
I kind of am here to do my own thing a lot more than I thought. Like, I'm not really here to take on y'all's thing and to make it great. I think I am here to sort of go, hey, what about this, though? <laughs> and I, I didn't realize that when I first started. I didn't realize how scary it was to really be yourself in this art form and to really stay true to that and not get caught up in fame and what the industry says you need to be doing. I didn't realize how hard that was going to be. It's really difficult to in the public eye. I don't think I'm famous, but I have notoriety. And with that notoriety to try to sort out all this stuff, I didn't realize how hard that would be or how personal it would feel. I'm ready for your take on the music, man. I am too. Wells Fargo wagons are coming. Let me tell you something. I think you know the territory. Let me you tell you something. You gotta know the territory. I'm obsessed with the movie musical. I get so furious when these musicals come out. I love all of you so much, but oh my God, y'all are all doing it wrong. <laughs> You're all doing it wrong. Like no shade, no tea, some shade. You're all doing it wrong. I'm obsessed with the genre, man. Like I've seen everything. I have a musical theater background. I love it. I love it. I love it. I think it's pure cinema because it's all of the art forms at once, you know. But I might have to go and write my own before y'all can see that. I can see it. You know, that's just been the reality so far. Well, Justin Simeon, I'm so grateful to you for uh, taking all this time to be on Bullseye. It was very nice to get to talk I to you. I so love your show. I listen to it all the time. I'm happy to be here, man. Really happy to be here. That's very nice of you to say. Justin Simeon. Season three of Dear White People is out now on Netflix. If you haven't watched it already, you can start from the beginning and watch the film too. It's all very delightful. Uh, it's really a great show. We've come to the end of another episode of Bullseye. Bullseye is produced at MaximumFun.org World Headquarters, overlooking MacArthur Park in the beautiful Westlake District of Los Angeles, California. This week in the park, our producer Ragu saw a man carrying a parrot around the lake, and they both looked like they were having a very nice day out. Our show is produced by Speaking Into Microphones. Our producer is Kevin Ferguson. He's away from the office. Ragu Manavalin fills in for him. Jesus Ambrosio is our associate producer. We got help from Casey O'Brien. Our production fellow is Jordan Cowling who maybe in the credits I made fun of a little bit for having a framed Gallagher album on her wall, but then she explained it all to me, and she actually has a pretty good reason to have a framed Gallagher album on her wall, and I can't get into the whole thing, but uh, let's just suffice it to say, I, I take it back. She was right. Our interstitial music is by DJW, also known as Dan Wally. Thank you to Dan for sharing it with us. Our theme song is Huddle Formation by The Go Team. Our thanks to The Go Team and to their label, Memphis Industries. And before you go, Bullseye has 20 years of archives, well, 19, 18 or 19 years of archives, hundreds of interviews with incredible guests. You can check them all out on our website at MaximumFun.org, or you can also find them in your favorite podcast app. We're also on Facebook, Twitter, and YouTube. Just search for Bullseye with Jesse Thorne. All of this week's interviews will be up on YouTube, so you can uh, keep up with the show there or, or share those or whatever you'd like to do. And I think that's about it. Just remember, all great radio hosts have a signature sign-off. Bullseye with Jesse Thorne is a production of MaximumFun.org and is distributed by NPR.